want to invite you to look at Psalm 111 with me. And if you don't have a Bible, you can follow there in the bulletin. That's the entire psalm. A very influential book. Last few, uh, last 25 years. Some of you may have read it, or you may own a copy and mainly get around to reading it. Is the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and. Uh, I, I probably need a fact checker on this because I don't have a copy of that book, but I believe it's in that book that the author, Stephen Covey, gave this piece of advice that if you want to start being smart about how you live your life, here's what you need to do. You need to imagine your own funeral, and you need to imagine that you're the one in the coffin, and you need to think about three or four people from your life getting up to speak. Someone from your family, a really close friend, uh, a co-worker, somebody from your community. And, I, and to envision what would you want said at your funeral. And then to think about what to aim for in your life, work back from that. In other words, if I want, to be, if I want them to stand up and say, he was an honest man, then that's what you're aiming for. If you want them to say he was a hardworking man, that's what you're aiming for. And in the last year, the reason I, even though I haven't read that book, the reason I know of it is in two different books I've read this year, they've referred to that. And in a recent podcast I listened to, uh, the speaker referred to that. Obviously, this made, it's made an impact on some people. Picture what you would like said about you when you're gone and let that flavor how you do life and what you aim for. Now, the reason I bring that up is this. This morning, I'm preaching on Psalm 111. Next week, Lord willing, I'm going to preach on the next Psalm, 112. And those two Psalms, these two Psalms, go together in some very obvious ways. And I'll unpack that more next week, not this week. But here's what I want you to think about. Psalm 112 is, it is a description that anybody should want of them at their own funeral. It talks about a man. It talks about a righteous man, a righteous person. The things that are said about him are what I think anybody would want said at his or her funeral. How do you get there? How do you become that kind of person? And in a way, unlike Stephen Covey, here's what I'm wanting us to see. It's not first by studying your own activities. Like getting to that funeral scene, if, if it happens that way, is not going to come primarily through me scrutinizing my work, my activity, my plans. It actually comes through Psalm 111, which is not about my life, which is not about our activities. So let's turn our attention to Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. 
The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we we pray now that you would open up your word. And even as we've we've broached the subject of how we will be remembered, uh, what our work will amount to at the end, we pray that you would enable us to think first about your work, your activity, your great deeds that we might be transformed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two summers ago, um, my family had the opportunity to to spend several weeks in England. And we lived in Cambridge. Still sounds weird to say that. We lived several weeks in Cambridge, England. And so got to see the, the University of Cambridge quite a bit. One day, just by myself, not with the whole family, I took a tour of um, some different sites on the, on the historic campus. And one of the stops was the Cavendish Laboratory. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Cavendish Lab, but this is a spot that has made sort of monumental scientific breakthroughs, DNA and advanced levels of physics and things like that. And it's become such a massive operation, it's not on the old campus anymore. It's almost like an entire separate campus to the west of, of Cambridge. But one of the stops was the old historic Cavendish Lab, and it has this big, beautiful wooden gate and uh, with this Latin inscription carved into the wooden gate. And so the tour guide said, does anyone know what this says? And a lot of us were Americans, so of course, no. We didn't learn things like that. But what it said was, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. That's a quote from Psalm 111. Now, on the one hand, that's really cool. But Cavendish Laboratory would not really today be identified as a place where folks are just excited about the work of God and like talking a lot about how God's fingerprints are seen in physics and chemistry and that kind of thing. Now, what is, what is that telling us about human nature? Is that God's works, and we're about to unpack what we mean by that in a second, but just the things that God does are so amazing that you can be so preoccupied with the works that you never really think about the worker. It could be somebody who is just scrutinizing these amazing parts of creation, physics, whatever, and never has the thought about God who orchestrated all this, who thought it all up. But it could also be something like, you know what? Uh, A lot of times I just don't really feel like coming to church because I like to be in the outdoors. I I think most all of us have felt that before. But what's the irony of that? What are the outdoors? The works of the God that we gather on Sunday mornings to worship. That it's easy to get more fascinated with the stuff He's done than with the one who did it. Now, this is a psalm about the works of God not our works. And the works of the man are coming next week, Psalm 112. But what I want to look at this morning is about God's work, God's, God's works. And let, let's break it down this way. First off, 
just the works of God, what do we mean by that? Then what do the works tell us? Where do they point us? Where do they lead us? What do the works tell us? And then third, the experience of God's work. The experience of it. So let's start off with just, you know, get on the same page. The works of God. When you think about what God does, I don't know what verb would come to your mind first. What, like, what God does day in and day out is He... And you, I don't know what you would think. You might say He watches over us. He controls things. He hears us. He sees us. All that's accurate. But we don't normally talk in terms of God working. What does God do day in, day out? Night in, night out. God works. What are His works? What kind of, and this is a huge deal, by the way, in the Psalms. That Words like your works, your deeds, your acts, that's just sort of sprinkled all through the Psalms and all kinds of scriptures. It's something that we praise God about. Well, one of the huge ones is, I've already said it, is creation. Um, whose work is first talked about in the Bible? Is it humanity's work? At the end of six days of creation, it says that God looks at what He's done, His work, and it's very good. And then He rests on the seventh day, and He blesses it, because on that day He rested from all His work. The Bible starts with God working in creation. And let me give you a couple of quotes here from Psalms. that I just thought, this jumped out at me more than it had in the past. One from Psalm 8 and one from Psalm 19 from Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, now think about the last time you really, truly saw a night sky away from the street lights, away from the city. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what a great way to describe the night sky. When I think about the work of your fingers, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork, the work of his hands. So, you know, a huge one in Psalms is just his works or his creation. It's Table Rock, it's Caesar's Head, it's the Blue Ridge Mountains, it's grass, it's dogs, it's all these things that we love in creation. It's especially dogs. Um, And other animals too. But is that really the concern in this psalm? This psalm is talking about his works... It is the work in mind, his creation. And every Old Testament scholar that I looked at said, that doesn't seem to be the one that this focuses on. We don't know who wrote Psalm 111 or what the occasion was or anything. What works are in mind? Now, so that I won't just get in a tedium here, you get this through not only the references, but really some of the particular Hebrew vocabulary that's used here. But it seems pretty certain that what the psalmist is thinking about is the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament. What's the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament? It comes up over and over and over. Historical books, psalms, prophets, they bring it up all the time. God says, don't you remember that I did that? What is it? The Exodus. When God rescues His people from awful, awful slavery. They had been slaves longer than than there's been a United States. 400 years. Awful. And they can't rescue themselves. And God saves them. 
and does all these wondrous works. Pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, part the Red Sea, destroy the army of the global superpower of that day. And then feed them in the wilderness where there are no stores, there are no farms. Feed them supernaturally. Provide water where there's no water naturally. His wondrous works. That seems to be the biggie, okay? So the works of God are just all the things He does, but in this psalm, the biggie is release from slavery, care in the wilderness, and being brought to Mount Sinai and given God's law and the covenant He makes with His people where He says, I'm your God and you're my people. You're my treasured possession. All right, so where are the works supposed to take us? Like, what is... It's great to know that, all right? Great information. But where, where is that supposed to lead me? Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but think about it this way. Why does Main Street, Greenville, South Carolina, feel different than all the other streets? What's there? Other streets have retail. Other streets are just two-lane. Other streets have historic buildings. But there's this thing that makes Main Street feel different. What is it? Trees. Why are the trees there? Now, some of you have been in Greenville a lot longer than I have, so you know this history better than I do. The trees are there because of a former mayor named Max Heller. And Max Heller was from Austria. And he had these sort of old-world sensibilities about what a real city street ought to look like, at least to him. And so, and I don't think this is a stretch... If you're walking down Main Street with these mature trees that now they have to prune or replace, they've gotten that big, and it feels good, and it it feels unlike newer areas. It feels unlike the normal American retail space. It feels more like an old world kind of place. What is that? That, That's, if if we can put it this way, that's Austrianness. you're feeling something about Max Heller because something about Max Heller came through in his work. And that's how our work is. The way, it's everything from how we design to how we write to how we clean to how we organize to how we respond. It, it's, we come out in it, in our work. Now, did you notice that's what the psalmist says about God's works? Let me show you two places where he does this. And these aren't the only two, but let's look at these two. Look down at verse 9. You know, the rescue from slavery is called redemption in the Old Testament. Now, look in verse 9. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. All right, that sounds like Mount Sinai. And then what does it say? Holy and awesome is His name. Catch the connection. Here's what he did, and what's the conclusion? God is holy and awesome. And man, you think about how the exodus and the parting of the Red Sea uh, and all those firstborn that were killed that night of the Passover. Awful. Um, God's appearance on Mount Sinai where this, you know, this Middle Eastern mountain becomes like a volcano how that would drive home to you. Why are those things happening? Because God is big. And He's the Creator, and we're the creatures. And He's infinite, and we're finite. And we answer to Him. 
He doesn't answer to us. He's God. That came through loud and clear. Holy and awesome is His name. But what else came through? Right, look in verse 4. Think about, the, think about the process again. Works, where does it lead? He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. One way He did that was through the Passover. Have this meal. Remember every year. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. So where does that lead us? The Lord is gracious and merciful. And that phrase or versions of it show up over and over and over in the Bible. Is God holy? You better believe it. Is He awesome? You better believe it. Is He kind? You better believe it. Does He not treat sinners like we deserve? Over and over and over Man, why did the firstborn of the Egyptians die and not our firstborn? Why did he let us out of slavery when we have been so disobedient? Why does he let us have this inheritance, this promised land, when we turn away from him over and over and over? Because he is gracious and merciful. And that just came through over and over and over. And where does that, what does that lead the psalmist to do? I mean, what's the psalm about? Worship. Verse 1. Praise the Lord. What is that in Hebrew? You don't have to know Hebrew to know what that is in Hebrew. Hallelujah. How, how does the psalm end? His praise endures forever. Do we praise God because He's big and powerful, or do we praise God because He's near and loving? Yes. Now, you could be sitting here and think, though, well, all right, but I'm not Jewish. I mean, I like those stories, but what sort of gets me going in the morning is not the Exodus. That's just, I think it's a great story, but that's just, I'm a Gentile, I'm living in 2014, that's not what gets me pumped up in the morning. Well, there is another reference or references in the Bible to the mighty works of God. And I'll give, I'll give you an example. You've heard of Pentecost? Pentecost came after Jesus died and rose from the dead and He ascended into heaven. And He had told His disciples, I want you to wait here in Jerusalem because power is going to be poured out on you. The Spirit of God is going to be poured out on you. And then you're going to go all over the world and be my witnesses. Well, the day when the Holy Spirit was poured out and this power came on the apostles was the day of Pentecost. And one of the ways in the book of Acts that you see that that's happening is that these, you know, these Galileans who don't know multiple languages, there are all these visitors to Jerusalem that day. They've come in for this feast and it's Jews from all over the world that speak all these different languages. And the apostles, without learning the languages, begin to talk to them in their own language. Libyan, Libyans, Cappadocians, Asians, Egyptians. The apostles address them in their language. And the people who get addressed say, what in the world is going on? And they actually say this. This is uh, in Acts chapter 2. It says that we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, what do you think the apostles are telling them. Are they telling them the Exodus story again? 
What would they be telling them about the birth and the life, the perfect life, and the suffering and the death, undeserved death, and the resurrection and the ascension of the Messiah? That, for the rest of the Bible, is the mighty work of God. So what does it look like to experience that? Not just know about it, but experience it. Look in verse 2. It says, Great are the works of the Lord. That's on the gate of that lab. Studied by all who delight in them. Great are the works of of, of the Lord. Studied by all who delight in them. The works of God aren't just supposed to be data that we know about but something that we have an internal experience with. Now, here's the funny thing. And as I say this, I don't have any particular person in mind, but I just, I've heard this and I've seen it. Is the, and this is kind of a Bible Belt thing to do, honestly. Is that you have the person, I'll pick on men, like you'll have the man and he's, he's, he listens to a sermon or he listens to a Sunday school lesson. And maybe it's talking about the Trinity, and so the teacher's up there the best they can trying to explain that there's one God and there's three persons who are that God. But the persons are not each other, but there's not three gods. There's just one God. And the Son is begotten of the Father. And we don't even know what that means. And then the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. We sort of kind of know what that means. It's, it's sort of a common thing for Bible Belt men to say, you know, why why do we have to make this so complicated? You know, like, why isn't Christianity supposed to be something that, like, you know, is just simple and straightforward, we have a simple faith? Why do we have to get so detailed and complicated? And then that man will go home and turn on the Golf Channel and will watch the most hyper-analytical scrutiny of swings with, like, high-level graphics of the arc of swings. And do you see right here at point oh oh one second where his weight shifted from the back leg to the front and just drink it in? That this is the best. Now, the reason I bring that up is not to, like, wrap the knuckles of the golf fan. It's just to say, why does he deem it worth study? Because he delights in it. You, you, do, you study what you delight. That might be another language. It might be Pinterest. Oh, it might be Pinterest. <laughs> but, you know, you, we study what we delight in. Um, here is a funny thing. Sometimes non-Christians are better students, or at least better question askers of the mighty work of God than the church is. I mean, you may have had the experience that uh, a, a, a friend, a co-worker, who would not profess to be a Christian, says, look, here's what I don't get. God is love. Doesn't it say that, that God is love? Okay, so God is love, but you're saying that somebody has to die on a cross for you to have this relationship with this God. If God is love, why would somebody have to die? And really, it's worse than that. Because the language of Scripture is that God crushed His Son. And that can be an abstraction until you look at video like we're seeing the past week or two of crushed people. 
that it was the will of the Lord to crush His Son. That was the only way that we could have a relationship with Him. So somebody comes to you and says, if God is love, why is that? And people who have been in the, in, in the church 20, 30, 40 years cannot answer it. But again, the mode I want to be in is not scolding. The mode I want to be in is to think about what if it's the work of God, not so much scrutinizing my work, but scrutinizing God's work that transforms me, even transforms my activity. I, the, the, the more I thought about this this week, the song that kept coming to mind is the spiritual that came out of the African-American church that, that we sing typically around Easter. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? What's, what's the refrain? Sometimes it causes me to what? To tremble. Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Is that good tremble or is that... What kind of tremble is that? It could be all kinds. But it's interesting how much whoever wrote that song got it, that this is not just data. This is not just Sunday school information. To really think about, like an Israelite, wow, God killed their firstborn, not our firstborn. He's big and He's loving. The cross runs that through an amplifier even more. Wow, God crushed His Son instead of me. He had to crush Him. He's holy. But He crushed Him and not me because He's gracious and merciful. And then how does that song end? um, Sometimes I feel like shouting what? Glory. Now I'll tell you what, take those two impulses. Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Sometimes I feel like shouting glory and put those together and you get verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. You and I, even our activities, our work, how we'll be remembered, is not going to primarily be transformed by staring at our own work. We will be transformed by staring and studying and meditating on the great works of God. Do you know why Jesus died? Do you know why He had to die and had to rise and had to ascend into heaven? It might be the very thing that makes you finally delight in a way that endures. Um, If we're going to get to Psalm 112, I'd love for you to come back next week. If you want to look at a transformed life, this is how you get there. It's through the work of our great God. Let's pray together. Father, write your word upon our hearts. And we say to you together that we are so consumed with our work, our activities, our plans, our accomplishments. Would you enable us supernaturally, even today, to put that down and to look and to meditate on, to really soak in the realities of what you did through your Son, Jesus Christ. 
that you're holy and awesome and you're gracious and merciful. And we pray this in his name. Amen.